Hello, I'm Maeve Doyle, and you're listening to A Private View. Today I'm speaking to three artists who are part of a show at Maddox Gallery in Los Angeles called Holding Up Half the Sky. Donna Coro, Marina Heinze, and Jessalyn Brooks. All three of the artists have beliefs about identity, self-determination, and the body. Their work serves as an urgent call for awareness, thoughtful dialogue, and effective action, all in the hopes of a more inclusive society. I started catching up with Donna Cora, one of the most positive, cheerful artists that I know. Hi, Don. Hello. Well, good morning. It's good morning from Texas. <laughs> Anyone who knows you knows some of the story of you being born in Texas, uh, mm-hmm. studying psychology, fashion, getting a law degree, working in journalism, but yep. always wanting to be an artist, but n- not really seeing that that could be a, a proper job, let's say, a proper career. But wow, mm-hmm. have you ever changed the way people see that? Your work now is uh, in collections, you've had residencies, it's in museums, you've done collaborations with massive brands. So in the last year, a lot of things have happened to you in terms of opportunities that have come your way. What are some of the highlights? I mean, one one of the highlights is just be, well, of course, work, working with Maddox Gallery has been awesome. It was awesome to um, you know go to London earlier this year and and have my solo show there and meet you know meet people there. Um, that that was a that was a great experience. And then you know when I came back, um, my work was on Law and Order, um, and it was on for several several episodes. Like, like when that whenever that happens, like you never know exactly. How they're going to use it, or what you know, what's going to happen with it, or anything. But I knew it was going to be on like a certain episode, so I was like, okay, let me tune in and watch it, and then, and I watch it, and then, and then Jennifer Beale s- said my name. She was, she said um, something like um, Don Okoro. You know, so she said the name of the painting, the effacement by Don Okoro. What do you think? And I was like, what? I had to rewind it, <laughs> you know, like to be sure. Like I was like, oh wow, this is awesome. And then. Um, and then the work ended up being on uh, on several several episodes of the show, and it, you know got quite a bit of camera time. So that so that was that was really cool. And also, I, I can't say exactly what yet, but um, people can expect to see my work on some more TV shows next year. So I'm really um, really excited about that. That's it's always you know cool to have the work on national TV, or you know because it's yeah. another way of kind of you know getting your work out there but uh, you know usually when and when your work is on tv you know they don't it's just kind of in the background so yeah but now they're writing it into the script it was part of the conversation it was amazing yeah and then i'm also working on a another collaboration and it's kind of it's kind of a kind of a secret collaboration right now but it's with an oscar winner that's most most i can say and then this product will be out uh, will be expected to be out next year so um so i'm looking for looking forward to to that as well and then I, my work um is in a movie right now so that that was cool like i went to the, the, invitation. the, to the theater to see it yeah. yeah and i you know I, I was like oh my god that you know that's it it got it um I don't have any pictures of it just yet because I was I was shy to like take to pull out my camera like in the theater and it's so polite. And, and yeah, that was that was really cool. So yeah, and, uh, you know, and so I'm just and other than that, I'm just I'm working to just create you know create more more new work. Now you work in collaboration with models. Uh, there are sometimes friends of yours, sometimes people you meet who inspire you, uh, but mm-hmm. you don't tell your models what to do. 
Can you explain your relationship with your models? Yes. Um, so yeah, my models are oftentimes just just people people I know. Um, my favorite way to go about um, the process of having them model for me is I would have them come to my studio, or I go to they, or I go to them, you know, whichever um, is convenient. But they'll come to my studio. Um, I tell them just wear wear what you want to wear, and um, and so and then they you know they show up and they may they may bring a couple outfits or they may just have on what they have on, um, and then um, I just try to try to try to capture them, um, just try to capture moments. Um, I think the sometimes the hardest part is just getting to that point where we're both comfortable and especially get, getting the model comfortable, just being in front of the camera. Um, Cause that's, I think I, you know, I get the best um, capture the best images to paint when, um, when they're just a, a moment where, you know, where the model didn't feel, didn't feel like they're having to pose, you know, for a portrait or something like that. So um, it just, I just like to have a, just a very um, loose photo, you know, photo session and, then when the model leaves and I'll look at the photos and then I get some, some new inspiration from that. And then from there, then I can, you know, create a, create a painting uh, based on that, re those reference images. I always feel that there's a certain amount of social politics in your work, in the way you relate to the model. I'm looking at a piece now called Speak. Uh, and that's part of holding up half the sky at Maddox Gallery, Los Angeles. How did that go? And I, I think of other artists using the relationship with the model as sort of a social politics too, like someone like Barclay Hendricks or Zanelli Maholi. Or... Yeah, um, like for, with that painting Speak Speak that you mentioned, um, the the subject of that painting, her, her name is Megs Kelly, and she is a, a musician. She's a, a rapper and... Um, she also produces music, and she you know, she is uh, based here in Texas as well. And um, she's part of a group ca called Magna Carta, and so I really I really um, felt fell in love with their music, and it became their music became something that I would paint to. And um, when she raps, um, you know what she's saying has is very, very, very conscious. Um, you know, very um, positive, um, very inquisitive. Um, Looking at the world and, and questioning it, um, and she always—it's um, important for her to important for her to speak her mind, um, you know, despite anything that may try to silence that, or you know, yeah. And so that, that was why I wanted to do this this piece of her. And then um, one thing that I do sometimes with my art is I'll use um, maybe metal leaf or or even other colors of paint to just sort of scribble out parts of parts of the the body and so in this case i used um blue paint to kind of mark out mark out her mouth and and show you know that she's still she's still going to speak you know regardless of of what you know may try to to hold her back from you know from saying what we what she thinks is important so um you know that's something i can definitely definitely stand behind what about looking east the acrylic and copper leaf on canvas piece that's also part of the show Yes, um, looking east, um, and for this one, the the subject is a fellow artist as well. She's she's a musician, and she she plays the piano, and and again, I found I found inspiration in in what in what she was doing and hear, hearing her music, and so I wanted to uh, try to recreate um, some of that that feeling on the on the canvas. So I brought her in, and she has she has a really uh, quirky sense of fashion as well. So that was fun. I'm bringing her in for the 
for the photo shoot. And um, you know, when I when I created the painting, I wasn't sure you know what color I was going to go with, but um, but for some reason the, the orange really spoke to me. And it's you know it's very it was just it's warm but also loud. And um, and then yeah, I knew I knew I wanted to use the the copper leaf to kind of um, cover cover up part, parts of her body. Um, and, but I didn't know exactly what direction I was going to go with it. So I just use sort of just gestural movements um, throughout the canvas. And the canvas is like for an American measurement, it's like six feet tall. <laughs> so like life, life size. So so whenever I put the copper leaf on, like first I put, um, I guess, equivalent to like a glue, like a, a me- called a medium size. And I and I just, just kind of wipe my hands all, all around um, and just th- thinking about her music and listening to it. And then and then I go over it with the actual copper leaf. And then what I get, what I got is what I got. Um, but but yeah, I was very inspired by um, the subject's music and creating that piece. Another piece in this show and a very different piece is called Pressure. It was made a little bit after the other two. Speak is 2018. Mm-hmm. So is Looking East. But a piece, the piece Pressure is 2021. Can you tell mm-hmm. me a bit about that? Yeah, Um that piece, the piece pressure is, is interesting because it's sort of a, a continuation of a of a series that I started almost a decade ago. And so that that series is something that I've, I started it and then I stopped. Then I came back and then I stopped and then I came back again to it to it last year. And this this is a situation where the model is actually not, not a friend or anyone I know. Um, um, this is a, a model that modeled many many years ago. Um, and it was a, a photo shoot where the um, this is a black model, but she, but her skin was also um, covered in black black grease paint. So so it made the, the the dark skin even even deeper to you know to create even even more of a contrast. And um, with with this series of work, I'm really just you know capturing like the, the shape of the the body and just being confrontational with the body. But the pieces that I finished from that series, um, maybe a few a few years prior, uh, like I, I finished maybe like six or so pieces from it and then um you know I put those out in the world and the pieces end up in different places and but last year I decided to just um to revisit to revisit it and um, there were some reference images that I hadn't used and and so I, there was just more I felt there was more to to explore there with, with these nudes and so that that's how that came about yeah it's incredible it's such a powerful piece the model is looking right into your eyes yeah, I think that that's very makes it even more confrontational because yeah, just sort of she's staring right back at you. <laughs> yeah, the other piece that I noticed is really different from anything I've seen you do before is antithesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the palette's different. The kind of way the bodies are blending into each other suggests either movement or, or I don't know what. Can it's gone into something very different here? Am I right? Do you feel it's different? So this the piece came about when I um drove I drove drove up to Dallas, Texas, which is about maybe three three hours from Austin, which is, you know, I live in Austin. And I met with a an artist in Dallas and she she was a painter as well. And I wanted to do a painting of her because I was going to be doing a show in in Dallas. And um this is a person I didn't I didn't know I didn't really know her, but someone else um Someone else introduced me to her when I was looking looking to meet you know, other artists in in uh, Dallas, and so when I so I took some time to talk to her and just get to know her a little bit better. I know she's she's a mother. She's very into fitness and yoga and things like that. And so so I was thinking, okay, so you're into fitness and being active, and so let's how about when I do when I create the reference photos, let's let's have you 
move around, you know, do some of the poses, poses that you enjoy doing um, when you do yoga or when you're stretching or, you know, getting ready to run. And so, um, so that's what, that's what we did. I took photos of her, you know, being active, um, you know, just doing, you know, being immersed in what she likes to do. And then when it was time for me to look at the reference images, um, there was something, I don't know, just something struck a chord with me with doubling her up, I guess. Like, so she's there on the canvas twice, but facing um, opposite directions. And um, I know something about that, um, the way the way that I turned, it kind of gave me a, a sense of movement that I liked because it looks like she's like about to take a step or, so, or something like that. Or to fly. Yeah, yeah, I never thought about it like that. But yeah, but yeah, yeah, I could, I could see that. Um, but yeah, something about that, I think, kind of just captured um, the, the movement that I felt um, being being around her initially. Yeah, I love it. I love this piece, and I, I like I like the the energy that's in it. Don, thank you so much for making the time for me today. I always like talking to you. Yes, it was always always good to chat with you. <laughs> My conversation with Marina Hindsett was challenging, challenging in a good way. She certainly engages in confrontation, asks why certain laws are made, and all of this plays out in the female form. I could sum it up by saying she uses target paper in a lot of her work. The conversation started with the question, is figurative art relevant on the contemporary art scene? And Marina shot back with a great answer. We still have bodies, so I think it's pretty relevant. Until humans don't have bodies, then maybe there won't be any more figurative work. But I think, you know, people like to see humans or animals or anything anthropomorphic or more so cremomorphism, which I had to look up, but it's more about an object. It has the human qualities, but it's not, it's, it's not anthropomorphic. So a man could be a rock or a woman is a rock giving the object human qualities, but it's different than anthropomorphism. And that's why with the states, like particularly, um, they're all under the politics series, but the ones that have the state heads, which can be confusing because when you say a state, it's like a state of being, but they actually are the states in the U.S. We're talking now about the work that you have in the show, Holding Up Half the Sky, and the pieces you have, which are um, very highly patterned, and they have states in the head? I didn't know this. Keep going. Yeah, so the not the don't tread on me. I mean, actually, it does reference the state of Texas, but it's in the shape of a snake. And the whole body is made up of a snake. But that's from the Gatson flag. I believe it was from 1775. And I've repurposed it. And so that the shape automatically of a uterus sort of looks like the state of Texas. And then as for the three other pieces... Arizona, Michigan, and Georgia, Georgia on my mind, which is referencing Ray Charles. Um, He was from Georgia, the musician, and that's his song. Uh, Those are the state heads. Specifically, you can see the borders of those exact states. They were contested for the presidential election in the U.S. in 2020. They were recounted, the votes, and the pattern specific in the state heads for each state those are based off of open source data that I researched. If those counties... It's infused with politics. You're using the body politic kind of thing. And you're, I'm guessing you're dealing with abortion laws and who owns a woman's body. And That is um, 
Don't Tread on Me specific is based off the heartbeat bill that was, uh, or inspired by, if you can be inspired by a legislation, that piece is specific. And it's referencing the scales of justice or the tip scales, because she has the clothing hangers, which are the scales, but the snake's tongue is woven inside of the clothes hangers. Um, I'm switching around for each piece, but what I wanted to say is that the state heads, the patterns for those, they're very specific to the borders. So the counties, um, they can change, which is gerrymandering. I'm very interested in showing people, you know, gerrymandering and how counties, they change and flip and expand and contract. And you're doing it in this kind of, so we were talking about figurative work here. Now you're not copying the body, you're interpreting it. It's a it's a jumping off point. You're interpreting the feel of a body. And, and they always sort of turn out to be women. I do have some older pieces that sort of are sexless, but the female body seems to be in all of them, which is, I guess, autobiographical, but it has to do with the laws specifically for, for women. Absolutely. Let's be clear. I would say that women's bodies are legislated and men's bodies. Of course. Right. That's why it, it all makes sense. It sort of all comes together. And the title, because it's sort of a subtitle below, which, you know, it has the state, Arizona is one. And then in parentheses, it's put the ballot back in the box. And the woman is the box. And I'm sure you've heard the slang like a box. It's it. They're putting you'll see the ballots and it's more abstracted with the ballots which are the envelopes that have the check mark on it. And they're all, you know, they all are made with the I voted stickers for voting here. So they all are trying to put the ballot back in themselves. They're trying to get the rights back. You're talking about a, a lot of corruption and the way to fight the corruption is maybe through the corruption. To take back the vote if you if you can, but it's through legislation. That's why... I think it's like the trickle down effect, which is voting locally does affect on a higher level. Um, you know, in your county, it does matter. Basically, I'm saying it it, it matters. So I'm going to take you back to the beginning. Where were you born and who were your parents? So I was born in New York City, um, sort of around one block south of Canal Street in Tribeca near Chinatown and my family they're they're in the arts my dad's an artist my mom she's a dealer and just everything art since I've been growing up an indoctrination of the arts <laughs> so were you drawing from an early age yes yes and I grew up in an old spice loft and my dad had his studio where we lived and I would go in there when the door was open, when he wasn't working and um, working there. Oh, isn't yeah. Pearl Art Supply on Canal Street? Oh, Pearl. Pearl's not there anymore. It wasn't on Canal Street? It was on Canal. I would go there all the time. So it's a really already end of town, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure Chinatown definitely influenced me for sure. Because I am drawn to red and gold and all these things. So definitely had an impact on who I am. New York. <laughs> what was your early life like? And when did you realize you were going to be an artist? Oh, man, I don't know if I if I ever realized I was going to be an artist. I sort of just came out or I was cut out because <laughs> my mom had a C-section um, and just was sort of like a Buddha. Just be 
I can kind of see it. I can see New York, where you lived, what your parents were, the dinnertime conversations, the fact that your mom was an art dealer. I mean, you would have known so much that isn't even taught in art school just by sitting in your family home. It's sort of problematic. You you know too much. You know, it can hinder because one of the things was like, it's already been done before. And I was like, I, I didn't want to believe that. I do feel there is possibilities still. I'm more optimistic. Well, looking through the work that you do, aside from the work that's in holding up half the sky, it seems like you won't let yourself get pigeonholed and that you turn your hand to a diverse range of materials and ways of working. That is true. I mean, specifically, I have another series, Gentian Violet. My um, This goes back into my past. You're asking, I previously was a tattoo artist, which is considered art, in my opinion. Yeah, it's certainly dealing with the body. Yeah, it's definitely dealing with the body. And I, I think part of that is why I veered away. But I also, two studios ago, went through a pretty severe fire and I had a business there called Meat Incorporated. So it's sort of a pun on words. It was a art studio um, and tattoo shop. It was all butcher themed. And that was also a pun. I'm very into puns and language. Um, so that sort of led to the, that is the catalyst that led to Gentian Violet. Because when you get a tattoo and you do the stencil, it is this purple color that you adhere onto the body, onto someone's body. And I'm very into science and researching materials. Um, and so I started researching, like, what is this purple? It's this very specific purple that I was like always drawn to just by the color. And there is a smell to it. And it turns out it's an antifung- it has antifungal and antibacterial properties. Um, and so I started working with that as an, as an art medium and there's a special printer you use for tattooing. I use that in my practice, my art practice, and I do a lot of design work on the computer. And then I, I print these pieces that are, are meant to put on skin, but then those pieces are on paper. So the artwork actually is antibacterial and antifungal, which is interesting because depending on the content, it, it's pretty relevant. It's so relevant. We've just come out of a pandemic, which is the first time in everybody's life. Right. I have a piece that's specific for that. It's called An Anthropologist's Wet Dream Zoonotic Transmissions. I don't know if you got a chance to look at that. And it's a whole timeline of all the viruses throughout history and and the animals that correlate to it. Because I'm very into, you know, animals and the environment, saving the animals if we can global warming, all that. So, and it's um, on a long Q-tip. So it's the whole history, like a swab, you know, the nasal swabs. Yeah, Animals are on top of each other, speaking to each other. And the viruses are inside of the Q-tip and they're stacked upon each other. um, Sort of like the Wuhan meat market of the stacking of the animals and kind of the exchanging of different animals that probably shouldn't be with each other, like the pangolin or the bat, or they all get the a bad rap because it never was the pangolin. Or anyways, bats, I'm very into bats because they carry all these viruses, but they never get sick. So there's also a visual pun because your work looks decorative and playful, and yet it's imbued with really deep, dark issues that exist in society that are aren't really part of our everyday chat yet they're happening i like the idea of sort of 
I don't want to say tricking the viewer, but enticing you in and then you don't really realize what you're looking at until you spend some more time. So like a sense of theater, there's a, there's a, you really understand the entertainment value of art, let's say. It's also entertaining. Yeah, I mean, it's that age old question, you know. I mean, if it's staying in your studio, if a tree falls in the forest, do you hear it? I mean, if anyone, if no one gets to see it, you know, what does it mean? If I'm just seeing it ver- there or if someone else is seeing it, what, do, what does it mean? My interpretation is definitely going to be different than somebody else's. Yeah, but that's what makes life interesting, these open debates. And if your work is triggering debate, that's exactly what the next question is. What is art for? And I've never done this before with the interviews, but I feel like I could answer that question for you, about you. You should. I will. <laughs> art for you is about encouraging debate. Oh, yeah. I mean, what is, I think, and now this is going to get deeper, what is good art? I think that if you're having some sort of reaction, that's a good thing. Right. But when I look at art, I don't, I don't necessarily need to know what it means. But if I'm having some sort of, it's giving me a visceral response, I think some, something good is happening. And I like that you don't have to know what's happening. You can just have a reaction and just like it for what it is. Just the Buddha thing, you know, just be. So I think that's what real art is too. That experience. That experience. My criteria yeah. for good art used to be it had to change the way I think and feel. Well, it's a change. There's You're having a response, so that's change. There's an energy shift. I'm so grateful that you made the time for us, especially after the opening. And I love this conversation. Love your work. And thank you for being so generous with me. Thank you. Jesslyn Brooks is a Los Angeles painter, and you can hear the city burbling around her during my conversation with her. You get a real sense of what her studio's like. She works small, large, dances, sings, uh, describes oil painting as a paint that feels alive. Beneath the surface, this is someone who reads a lot of psychology and refers to Carl Jung and his symbolism throughout the conversation. Hello, Jesslyn. Hi, Maeve. How are you? I'm well. I'm very happy to talk to you and the more I haven't seen the show but I'd heard so much about it that when I heard I had the opportunity to interview I I went into all the research I could to find out about you and I love your palette I like the work you're doing I uh, like how your your work has this contemporary and nostalgic feel it's inviting and warm so I feel like our conversation is going to be a reflection of your work oh Thank you. So I guess the first question I'd ask you is, if you were to tell me who you are and what you do, how would that story go? Well, I'm Jess. Hello. I am a painter. I'm kind of relatively new to it. uh, And I fell into it on accident. I didn't really have any intentions of being uh, an artist. Yeah, I live and work out of my studio in downtown Los Angeles in the Flower District. How does someone fall into painting? Well, I loved to paint and draw in like middle school and high school and, and all that. And I, and I wanted, when I went to college, university, I was studying music and then I minored in painting. And I had a professor kind of like pull me aside and be like, I think if I were you, I'd just focus on music and like not do both. I was like, okay. So then I just like stopped 
doing visual art for like 12 years or something. I like never touched a brush or a pencil or never, like nothing. I was a musician for a long time and a dancer. And I moved to Los Angeles. I was doing this show. And at one point I was, I had a vintage shop in East Los Angeles in Silver Lake. And I started playing with dyes. I was like dyeing a bunch of the vintage clothing that I was selling. And then I started playing with like dyes and turning them into like paintings on on the clothing, like sort of like that. It was just being really, really creative. And it just like slowly became like a thing and people really responded to it. So it just snowballed from there. And then I started really painting and then I revisited oils it was a return to something that I had loved to do and was ambitious about in my youth. And then like it went dormant for a long time. And then it was like a new perspective on something. And I had, you know, I had no baggage about it. And I just went for it and just turned into a career. <laughs> what was your early life like? What, what, what was your childhood like? And, and how did you know you were going to be an artist, whether that's a performer or a dancer or a designer? That's a great question. I am the oldest in my family, all boys. Uh, I grew up in Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up in a family that didn't, there was, there was no art. You know, there was like very sports oriented and I was kind of like the weird black sheep, you know, like the sensitive one. I remember at a young age, I was just talking about this the other day. I was like 10 when I, when I, I realized something and I had this like weird 10 year old epiphany. I, I used to like to draw the kids would like circle around me in class. And like, we would do this thing where like someone would scribble a line and I would make like an animal out of it. And it was, you know, it was sort of performative because everybody was around and watching me and <laughs> and I probably loved the attention. Yeah, but I, I think it was like a moment like that. I I realized like I really enjoy making something out of something that makes no sense. There is a surrealist show on now at the Tate and it shows artists continuing each other's lines. It's something about connecting people through line and drawing. I like the idea that kids used to gather around and you'd turn the lines into animals. Of course, who wouldn't love that? What influences your work? What influences you culturally, artistically? And, and what shaped the work that you do and why you paint the body? Well, honestly, I think as I like really look at my stuff, I would say a lot of it is self-portraiture. I think my relationship with my own body has been a really interesting journey. I, well, I developed at a very young age, right? So like when I was 10 and like doing these like drawings for kids in my fourth grade class, I had like a C cup uh, uh, bra size. Like I, I, I got my period when I was 10. And you're in a family full of boys, yeah. And in a family full of boys, and like, um, yeah, it was really fucking weird. <laughs> so I'm guessing people were responded differently to you from the age of 10. Yeah, it was a mixed bag of like embarrassment and realizing power dynamics at a very young age, you know, the brain developing around that 
whole thing and my personality developing around understanding power dynamics at a young age, realizing that sex is power at a young age or like, you know, whatever, the body, a female body, like you have a certain amount of power, but then is it the kind of power you want? And is it, is it real power or is it power? um, It's a bargain, I guess. It can be transactional. Transactional. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly it. So is it real if it's transactional? You know, I remember growing up and like being so ashamed of having to realize that. And like, I wanted to be loved for who I was and my brain and my heart and all that stuff. So yeah, so I like dressed very modestly. I covered up everything. But then I realized like, nobody likes me when I'm like this. And so then you'd go in the other direction. And then you get scared doing that. And then you go in the other direction. And it's just, uh, it was weird growing up in that type of that type of thing. No, but that shaped you. This makes sense. This shapes how you are as an artist. You're kind of out of control of what's going on in your life because your body's taken on a life of its own. And you have to adjust to it regardless of wanting that or not. It's going to be the way you present yourself to the world. So in a way, like a lot of artists, you got into it as a form of therapy, like self-healing, self-discovery. I think that's what Basquiat said he did. I know that that's what Frida Kahlo did after periods of illness. And illness can be psychological or physical, as we all know. Um, They took to drawing as a way of understanding what was going on. And I think you just told me that's what you did. You know, there's also the performative element, which I think at this point, that's not so much why I make it anymore. And I'm at a point in my life now where I'm like really getting to like the bones of like why I do this. Like I'm really, really looking at it. It's like an awareness. Why am I doing this? Why am I making this? What am I actually saying? And who am I doing this for? And yeah, like I would say within the last few months, I'm starting to come to understand that, which is really freeing. What's your studio practice like? Oil paint is not easy. So yeah, I love oil that. paint's a mess. Um, it's also beautiful. I wouldn't work with any other medium. I couldn't. It just doesn't feel alive. It goes back to your want to collaborate. Oil paint is alive, and you have to listen to it, and it takes months to dry. Oh, my God, totally. <laughs> so how many pieces do you work on at the same time? I Right now I have two large pieces that I'm working on. I work a lot, and I work pretty fast. I wake up every morning at like 6, 6.30, make coffee, take the dogs out, and then I go right to work. It's my routine. What time do you work until? It's hard for me to work at night. I, I need I need sunlight. So, Do you use models or do you use pictures that you find? Or what's your relationship with models? Or do you use yourself? I do use myself. I use myself mostly. I do go to like Los Feliz in Los Angeles has a, there's a drawing workshop. I go every like once a month or whatever, just to sharpen my tools, you know, and I draw from live live model, like a three hour session. But other than that, yeah, no, I, I would say most of my stuff, I just sort of like go, I, I wouldn't say like my, my paintings are proportionately accurate or or whatever. I think there's a gentle distortion 
in a lot of my pieces. I mean, some of the work I looked at, I instantly thought of Loie Hallowell and uh, how you oh, were I getting. Love her. Oh, of course, I saw her show at Pace. It was extraordinary. Yeah, she's great, and her dad's work is extraordinary too. Yeah, yeah, he's more. He used to paint her figuratively, and she says that's why she wouldn't go near figurative work. So oh, that's wow. quite interesting. So I see your work a lot like hers about how it feels to live in a female body rather than what it looks like. And I notice that your titling is quite important. Like, I'm looking now at a yearning for paradise. What would you say about that piece? Oh, my God. I painted that piece like the summer of 2020. I would say it was um, just sort of a subconscious, like, I really didn't know what I was doing when I was doing it. It's beautiful. I could live with that one so easily. It's gorgeous. Oh, thank you. And it's 60 by 52, a big canvas. It's a big canvas. Yeah, I could see you work with light in it and the transparencies and the shapes and every other thing I want to see about it. The next one I'm looking at is even hell can be beautiful in the right light. Where was I there? Um, I think I was doing some shadow work (laughs) when I was doing that, Uh, like psychological shadow work, you know, like going down to the depths of my own, like, darkness. That's an artist's job, Jessalyn. I know, I know. Not everything is bright and pretty. Uh, (laughs) We have to address some things. Do you read Jung? Of course, yeah. Uh, In fact, he's on my nightstand right now. Dreams. I love Carl Jung because there's something that's not concrete about it. Like, it's not magic, but it's not science. There's an ambiguity, I think, to Jung, and I can't really, like, make all the sense of it. Julie Curtis went through the pandemic with her husband, Clinton King, and they read Jung together through it because, of course, there was nothing else during the pandemic to do but examine your subconscious. You couldn't go out and be inspired. And in fact, a lot of work changed through the pandemic because of the Jungian symbolism. And it's so important right now. And the reason it's resurging the way it is is because things are not making sense. Totally. And he's the only comfortable place for people to be. I think the post-pandemic shift and like this just touching on what you just said is I think pandemic forced a lot of people to be in their own minds. I mean, you really had no choice. And we are now, I think, a little more connected to intention. And like, I think it's sort of shifting the way we go about things. Like, I think people are being a little more honest because they realize like, you have to be honest or people will be on to you. I think we're all starting to value and recognize authenticity a little more. And, and we, we're more attracted to it than we ever used to be. If you could live with one piece of art, what piece of art would it be and why? Narcissist, the egg, uh, Dolly. It's an amazing painting. Um, it's, I spend a lot of time thinking about it and looking at it, trying to figure it out. It's crazy. Um, yeah, I love that. I, I just like, I like, ambiguity i i love an unanswered question and yeah just like the the stress of an unanswered question i have to do something with that stress jesslyn brooks thank you so much for being part of a private view and for talking so freely and openly about your work thank you man thanks for talking to me you've been listening to mave doyle's private view 
This podcast is produced by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. The music is by Korshid Homi. Thank you for listening. <laughs>